0: A few years ago, I was invited by a pastor, a telephone call, to come hold some meetings at a church. And uh, he said, "I I realize that you are a theologian, and we'd like for you to come and speak to our people every night for a week and then on the Sundays, but we don't want any theology. What we want is just good Bible doctrine. So I went for a week, and I taught theology and called it Bible doctrine, and everybody was happy. Well, I want to teach some doctrine this morning, I believe, but we're going to do it in a little bit different way from the way I'm used to doing it. But I do want us to look at some very basic theological issues as we think about what our Lord has revealed about himself through John chapter 1, if you'd like to open your Bible to that chapter. The most important theological question in the world is, what will you do with Jesus? Uh, All else Tails into insignificance beside that question You do not have to understand any of the various ministries of the Holy Spirit in order to be a Christian You don't have to understand the theology of the baptism of the Holy Spirit Or the theology of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Or the theology of the illumination of the Holy Spirit You don't even have to understand the details of whether there be a Holy Spirit If I understand the Bible all right But you do have to understand who Jesus is and you do have to understand what he did and not only do you have to believe it, as Dr. MacArthur has mentioned to us, even the demons believe it, you have to believe it and be happy about it. That is, you have to believe it and agree with it. The most important question in the world obviously then is what have you done with Jesus? Not only do you need to know who he is, not only do you need to know that he came and he died for our sins, not only do you need to know that he was rose again, that he rose again for our justification, but you have to have to appropriate and accept those things as a part of your own personal conviction. Now, if that's true, then theology ought to focus on the person of our Lord. To me, it's amazing that a lot of Christians seem to know more about the life and the words and the works of the Apostle Paul. Some know more about the words and works of John Calvin or of Martin Luther than they seem to know about the words and works of our Lord. If it is true that the key issue of theology relates to our Lord Jesus Christ, as the Bible tells us, then those passages of Scripture which focus most specifically on our Lord and telling us more about Him should be very dear to us and very special to us. And so I want us to look at John chapter 1, at five pictures of our Lord that are painted for us here. You know, we don't have any actual portraits of our Lord. We have several differing artist conceptions about how our Lord looked. But John has painted for us not pictures of how he looked physically, but some very important images about our Lord in various contexts. And I want us to look at these. I remember years ago, a former professor of mine talked about the significance of the titles of our Lord. You've looked at some of those earlier this week in John's gospel and then the pictures of our Lord. And so I want to follow his lead in looking just in particular at John chapter one at several key pictures here about our Lord. And the first picture is in John 1, 1, the picture of our Lord, the portrait that John paints of our Lord in eternity past. The, the verse begins, the chapter begins, the book begins with these very awesome words, In the beginning, was. Stop right there, the word was for a moment. The artist here, John, is our artist this morning. John is painting a portrait of our Lord in eternity past, and the first stroke of his brush, there are several strokes of the artist's brush here, the first stroke is that word was, that's the key word here. In other words, what he's saying is that in the beginning, whenever that was, we have some idea about when it was. It's referring to the same time that Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 does, in the beginning. When this whole business, the whole time, space, universe complex in which man is involved and angels are involved and so on, when that began, the word was. That's interesting, isn't it? That's quite a word. The word was is a key word there indicating the fact that he already was. He existed prior to the beginning of everything else. In the beginning, the word was. I was traveling in Pennsylvania here not too long ago and listening to a radio station, a Christian radio station there. And some uh, well-known speaker came on the air and he was arguing against the doctrine of recent creation. We'll say a little bit more about that this morning. He was arguing against that by saying those people who imagined that the earth was only created a few thousand years ago have to imagine that God was sitting around forever with nothing in existence but himself. And so that was his argument against recent creationism. think that one through for a moment. Uh, my father used to tell me to put on my thinking cap. Put on your thinking cap and imagine. How, uh, how valid is that kind of an argument? Let's suppose that God didn't create anything until you name how many zillions and billions and quadrillions of years in the past you can name. Then how long prior to that was he sitting around without an earth in existence? And the answer is you really haven't shortened it very much, have you? On one recent trip when I was driving between two cities, I decided that I was going to focus my mind on trying to think through carefully that whole issue of eternity past and how our Lord could have existed forever without ever having come into existence. And eventually I just had to give up. I really couldn't think it through. I, try, I ask myself now, the kingdom that our Lord will establish upon this earth will be an eternal kingdom. Will that kingdom last longer than our Lord existed prior to his creation of the heavens and the earth? How would you answer that question? <laughs> the answer is no, because it was forever. He didn't start. Now my mind won't think. I can, I can conceive of non-endingness. But I can't conceive of non-beginningness, if I can make up a word like that. That's beyond the scope of my comprehension, but the first stroke of the brush in painting a picture of our Lord is simply that in the beginning he was. Now we don't know anything about God prior to that. We don't know anything about just a few little glimpses here and there. There's a little bit of revelation about him. We do know that there were no angels in existence prior to the beginning. We do know that there was no earth in existence prior to the beginning. There was nothing in existence but God. He didn't even have a cloud to sit on. He didn't even have a throne. He didn't need a cloud. He didn't need a throne. He didn't even have light. Light did not exist until that period of time that we call in the beginning. And it's difficult for for us to imagine that the Bible of course tells us that the darkness and the light are both alike to thee He doesn't need the light to get along and he got along well forever without light We need it when he created an earth for us. He created light The first stroke of the brush then is simply that word was the second stroke of the brush is the word word in the beginning was the word now that's, a, to me, a, a very startling word. Most of you heard the Greek word lagos. That's the word that we have here, lagos. And we've taken it over into English a, a number of different ways. Uh, we put it on the ends of various English words to signify a careful study of something or even a scientific study of something. We put it on the end of the word theology, theos, the Greek word for God, and theology then is a careful study of God. Biology is a careful study of uh, bios, life. Zoology is obviously a careful study of zoos or something like that. <laughs> but, but the word is simply the expression of a thought. And, and the word, word would have in the minds of the Jewish people at least undoubtedly have, have pointed them back to Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we have the creative word of God. Mentioned in various key places throughout that chapter, for example uh, When we have that little phrase let there be light for example or the little phrase Let the earth bring forth or let the waters swarm and those kind of statements Those are all in Hebrew really commands and you could translate them. It wouldn't be the smoothest Smoothest English, but you could translate them very realistically as commands You could say that that our Lord simply says at at the, the appropriate time light be And then later on, earth, sprout forth grass and herbs and fruit trees yielding seed after the kind. And later on to the waters, he says, waters swarm with all kinds of living creatures. And if you had been watching the water, I'm sure that there would just be little swirls of water. And the first thing you know, the water forms itself into a fish. And here the fish starts swimming away. It's simply a command of the Lord. And that concept that our Lord is the word would have pointed the Jews to that concept of the creative word, I'm sure. But to Greeks, it would have had a different idea. For example, Plato, who was probably the most famous of the Greek scholars, said something like this. He said that, uh, that, uh, if I can find it in my little scribbling here... uh, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a Lagos, notice that, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Isn't that interesting? From Plato, 300 years before Christ. And then John is saying, then, yes, that's true. Here has come forth a person, a man from God, the Lagos, who is to reveal God to man. And he's gonna, we're going to have another picture painted of our Lord doing that very thing a little bit later in this chapter. He is the Word. I find it interesting that in Revelation chapter 19, when we have our Lord riding out of heaven to conquer his enemies on the white horse, he's described there as one whose name is the Word, same word, his name is the Word of God. The third stroke of the brush in this look at our Lord in eternity past is his equality. That's seen in the next word, the next key word there. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with, with God. That word with is a word which shows relationship. Reciprocity, something back and forth. It's translated to or toward, that kind of an idea. And our our Lord was in a relationship with God the Father. The very idea of the word being with God suggests a relationship. It suggests a multiplicity within the personality of God. It suggests that God is, is in some sense more than one. But the word was with God. And of course, that's very vital for us, very important for us in many, many ways, because we know then later on, let us make man in our image. And we're made in the image of God as rational beings, and therefore there has to be purpose to what we're doing. And then also we're made in the image of God as a fellowshipping, relational being. The word was with God. And there has to be then relationships in us. We have to be involved in relationships to be what we should be in the image of our Lord. So our Lord was with God. Uh, Russ was making fun of the fact that I've been to school longer than you've existed. I went to school so long ago that in high school I had to have two years of Latin. Now that's long ago. They quit that, I guess, I don't know when. I don't remember any of my Latin uh, except that's a more, and I think I learned that from Dean Martin or somebody, I don't know. But uh, Years later on, I remember seeing from, uh, from Augustine, one of the famous church fathers, a, a Latin phrase which stuck in my mind, and it won't mean anything to you, but he said, ubi amor, ibi trinitas. Where there's love, where there is love, there's trinity. There has to be a lover, and a beloved, and a spirit of love. He amplified, I don't know whether it makes a lot of good sense. But in John 17, our Lord speaks about the glory which he shared with the Father before the world was, the fellowship, the the fact that he knew the Lord and he wanted us to enter into the knowledge with the Father that he shared with the Father before the world was. And, And I think this whole emphasis upon fellowship and communion is something that we need to learn to appreciate more and more because we are in the image of God. The fourth stroke is is his essence, which is emphasized simply by the word God, and the word was God. Not a God, not what the Jehovah's Witnesses say, not the God, we're talking about distinction and personality here, we're just simply specifying his character. The word was God, that's what he was, he's deity, and then finally his effect, all things were made by him now all things simply means all things everything I happen to believe that the Bible teaches very clearly that uh, the earth was created in six days just a few thousand years ago the earth is not millions or billions of years old as evolutionists have been trying to convince us for quite a few years now it's just a few thousand years ago In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, we're told in Genesis 1-1. And Exodus chapter 20, one of the Ten Commandments says, uh, Because in six days, you're supposed to... He was giving instructions for the Jewish people about the Sabbath, remember. And amplifies by saying, Because in six days, the Lord God made the heavens. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth. I'm tying Exodus 20.11 with Genesis 1.1 1, 1. and the whole point of Exodus 20.11 then is that Genesis 1.1 1, 1 has to be included within the six days. He created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that in them is. So the earth has not been here billions of years longer than man. Man was created within the six days. The earth was created within the six days. Angels were created within the six days. In fact, on day one... If you're looking back at the fact that everything has come into existence through him, that's what we're told here. On day one, our Lord had three primary creative actions. First step, in the beginning, he created the heavens. There are several times when that's paraphrased later in the New Testament, later in the Old Testament, and we're told he created the heavens with their hosts. When he created the heavens, he created them peopled with angelic beings. I don't know exactly how he did that. Whether angels, can you imagine, I'd like to be able to, to envision that. Whether the angels just popped into existence one at a time, pop, 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 pop you know, all around the place and here they are just in the millions. Or whether it was just one fell swoop. Let's have some angels, whoosh, and there they are by the billions. I don't know how God did it. But in any case, I do know that angels who are part of the heavens... I do know that, that animals, I do know that people, I do know that everything, the Bible tells us that he created everything within the six days of Genesis chapter one. All that's in the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that in them is, he tells us very explicitly. I, I had the privilege of speaking to uh, to the uh, medical students at Indiana University on a number of occasions last year. and. Uh, those were some interesting conversations after one of the sessions one of the medical students was challenging me about the theory of evolution and he was trying to say that uh, all the evidence was in favor of evolution and I asked him because I knew they would had problems with this I asked him well just to give me an illustration of what you believe explain to me where birds came from in your evolutionary system you know and he thought for a moment, he says, well, there are only two possibilities. One is through some process of micro mutation and the other is through some process of macro mutation. I said, explain what you mean. I knew what he meant, but I wanted him to put it into words. And he said, well, you know, we all know that birds came from reptiles through some evolutionary process. So it must be something like this, that somewhere along the line, Uh, A lizard laid egg, some reptile laid an egg, and from that egg hatched a lizard that had some kind of rudimentary bump on its side. Now, obviously, you can't just have a lizard laying an egg and and having a wing on its side as a step toward a bird, but it has some kind of a a bump on its side, and and that bump is a mutation, so generations later on of lizards will have bumps on their sides, at least certain uh, descendants of that particular lizard would have that bump. And fortunately, a million years later on, a lizard, one of those with a bump on its right side, laid an egg and out from that egg hatched a lizard with a matching bump on its left side. And to make the story short, before long you had a bump on the bump, another billion years and then a bump on the bump and a bump on the bump on the bump on the bump. And first thing you know, you have lizards running around with big appendages and one day, here he had a problem trying to explain it to me. Here he said, one day, a, a lizard laid an egg from which hatched a lizard with bumps, matching bumps, and out on the end of one of the bumps was a feather. He didn't know how to get from no feather to feather, but there he was, there was a feather. Well, I said, well, there's some major problems with that view and you're familiar with them, I I trust. In the first place, in the the geologic strata, nobody's ever come up with a lizard with bumps on its side, you know, or one with bumps plus a feather sticking out or anything like that. in the second place, uh, nobody knows of mutations like that producing good things that are nice. Mutations are deleterious. They're bad. They're harmful, you know. And in the third place, uh, if you're talking about survival of the fittest, how long, which lizard is going to live? The lizard that can go skinning and running around through the weeds and the bushes or the lizard that has big, these big appendages hanging on its sides for several thousands of years. And he, said, he says, you've got some good points. And that's why I prefer macro evolution. I said, OK, explain what you mean by that. He said, well, one day a lizard laid eggs in the sand, the way lizards had done for millions of years. And, and actually, the only way to, I know how to explain it is that it was just a genetic goof. The lizard made a mistake in some way. And out from two of those lizard eggs had to have two. One wouldn't do. Out from two of those lizard eggs hatched two birds. The lizard just goofed and laid bird eggs. (laughs) Now, you you think that may sound silly. And it does, I suppose. In fact, that was my response to him. I said, man, that that sounds like a fairy tale to me. And he said, well, tell me, what is is it that you believe? And I said, well, I believe that one day God said, uh, time to do a little creating. And God said, I'm going to create a heavens and an earth and some light and then some uh, separate the dry ground from the, from the water and then some plants and then some sun, moon and stars and then some animals and then man. And he said, well, that sounds like a fairy tale to me. And I said, oh, you're right in one sense because I don't have any proof of that except that I have a pretty reliable record, I believe. And I believe that the fairy tale that I have here, if you want to call it that, is one that makes, in my opinion, more sense even scientifically than your fairy tale. And I happen to choose to believe it, I think, on, good, on a good source. I asked, do you believe in Jesus? He said, yeah. I said, have you ever read John 5 verse 46? Where Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? I think we can say that if you won't believe our Lord's words, you won't believe Moses. If you do believe our Lord's words, you should believe Moses. The picture of our Lord in eternity past is a vital picture. His eternity is emphasized. His expression as the word of God is emphasized. His equality with God is emphasized. His essence is emphasized. His effect, everything is emphasized. Let's look at the second picture in entering flesh. The picture of our Lord in entering flesh. Verse 14. We're just skipping through a key in, uh, several key images here. Here we have four strokes of the brush in entering flesh. The word became flesh. Now, uh, that's not talking about uh, meat or skin. Uh, It means the word became human. That's what it means. All that is involved in being human. It includes what we call flesh in the strictest sense of the word. But flesh simply means the word became truly human. He didn't masquerade as a human being. He became a human being. And you see, that was something that was impossible for the Greeks at that time to understand. Because for the Greek people, matter is evil. We're living in days when there's a revival of all forms of Eastern mysticism. I was riding on the plane from Atlanta last week, and the lady in the seat behind me—I couldn't—the the conversation just kept grabbing me. She was coming; a young lady was coming to, South, to Southern California because she'd read all the works of Shirley MacLaine, and she wanted to be out here much closer to Shirley MacLaine, hopefully to learn more from her about this whole business of reincarnation and all this Eastern mysticism and all the, the sinfulness of matter and the and the holiness of uh, you know. I don't know what Shirley MacLaine believes, and I'm not interested in it but the fact is that there are a lot of people who seem to have the idea and they did in the ancient world that the body is something evil and our lord answered that question once for all when he became a human being and accepted a human body just as we have to me it's just grace upon grace to realize to begin with that god made us in his image and then to add to that he became one of us he accepted human flesh himself, and, and that gives our flesh, our humanness, an exalted status beyond anything I think that we could comprehend were it not for that. He became one of us. Now, flesh is not evil. Turn, Keep your finger in John 1 and turn to First Corinthians 6. I want you to see something I think that's important here. Paul is writing about sex sins to the Corinthians that's the key topic here and he talks about the body belonging to the Lord first Corinthians 6 verse 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and so forth then he gets to verse 18 and he's writing to react to the Greek ideas about bodies being evil and for some reason that idea is a very prominent idea today he says verse 18 flee fornication Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committed fornication sins against his own body. Now, I'm reading from King James Version. If you're reading from the New International Version or from the New American Standard Version or from any of the other modern versions, they will do something there that is quite interesting. They will add a word. Every one of them do. They add a word which entirely changes the meaning of the passage because Paul is arguing about the fact that, that sin is not a physical matter your body is is just as much it, your body belongs to the Lord just as much as your spirit does. That's his concept and don't you know that the body is for the Lord and your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit is going to emphasize in the next verse. and so his point is that sin is not a physical matter. Get away from this Greek idea every sin that a man doeth is without the body stop period. His idea is that sin is not a physical thing. Only persons can sin. Dogs, horses, trees, cows, tables, desks, chairs, fingers, toenails, eyes can't sin. Only a person can sin. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but it's possible to sin against your body. It's possible to use your body in a sinful way. And he says here, if you commit fornication, you're sinning against your body. If he had been discussing it, he could have said, if you take drugs, you're sinning against your body. He could have said, if you get drunk on Saturday night, you're sinning against your body. His point is that here you're using your body in the wrong way. But all the modern versions throw in every other sin that a man doeth is without the body. And that that makes us misunderstand the whole point of the passage, which is to emphasize the fact that sin is not a physical matter. Do not think of our body as something evil. I want to emphasize that when our Lord entered flesh, He helped us to see in a way that we could not have seen, in view of the philosophy of the world at least, the fact that, that matter isn't evil. We can sin using material. Only persons can sin, not bodies. So in our Lord, entering flesh is a vital part of our understanding about who we are. It gives our flesh special dignity. I would like to add that our Lord could not possibly have become an animal. Think think about that for a moment. He became human, but he could not have become a dog, or a horse, or a cat, no matter how you may admire any of those creatures. He could not do so, why? I'd like for you, I wish I had time for you to get together in groups and answer some of these questions, but I don't. Why could he not have become an animal? You see, the, the reason he could become man is because he'd already made us in his image, and he could become man without quitting being God. But he can't quit being God. In order to really be an animal, he'd have to quit being God. Animals don't have any moral consciousness or moral sensitivity or moral awareness to their nature. He could masquerade. I mean, he could take on an animal form... But he can't be an animal and at the same time be God. But he can be a man and at the same time be God. That's why it's so vital at this time of year, at Christmas time, for us to focus on on the significance of the virginal conception of our Lord. Where do people come from? How do people come into existence? There are only several basic theories. One theory is that we've existed for a long time, some kind of pre-existence theory, and at the time of conception or time of birth, the spirit unites with the body in some way. That's hardly a Christian view, and doesn't fit with any biblical data. Another very common view is that at the time of conception or at the time of birth, God creates the soul and sort of puts it in the body. So you have a creation of each individual soul. Now this is important to understand if you're going to understand what happened at Christmas. Uh, If that view were true, by the way, we would have a problem understanding the whole doctrine of depravity in the Bible, would we not? The Bible teaches that we were shapen in iniquity and conceived in sin and were by nature the children of wrath, but how would that happen if God creates the soul? Does God create an evil soul? Or the way many people taught it for years, does the soul become contaminated by being united with a sinful body? (laughs) There we go with that matter is evil again idea, which is unbiblical. And the answer is no. That's just simply the wrong approach to where we come from. The Bible tells us that persons are generated. The normal procreational processes bring into existence a new person. Now, do you see why our Lord had to be born of a virgin? How long had He existed? He had existed forever, had he not? We've already seen the picture of our Lord in eternity past. And in entering flesh, the normal processes could not have been employed because the normal procreational processes bring into existence a new person. And he would be two people because he, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever, had always existed. So we cannot have a new person coming into existence. A famous German theologian last year wrote some arguments, he was saying that we're trying to argue about too many things. The Lord would still be my Lord, he said, even if he were born to Joseph and Mary through normal procreation, even if he were the son of a German soldier, he would still be my Lord. That's what this famous theologian was saying. And I would say, no, when you're worshiping the babe in the manger. You must be understanding that the babe who was born had lived forever and he was virginly conceived. He was not the son of Joseph and Mary. He was not the son of anyone and Mary. The normal process of procreation could not possibly have been used because he had existed forever and procreation brings new persons into existence. By the way, the very passage we're looking at affirms that look at the verse above it, verse 13. Which He's talking about the sons of children of God, which were born, not of bloods, bloodlines, talking about the new birth here, see, it's not because of who your parents are, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, in in the Greek that word man is not the normal word for man, it's the word male, you know, people come into existence through procreational processes, the word will here could even be translated At the whim of a man and people are procreated as a result of sinful activities sometimes even rape or even adultery can bring persons into existence. But the point of that verse is to say that the the new birth is very different from the original birth, from the first birth. The first birth has to do with bloodlines and the will of man and people even come into existence through procreational processes, but not so with the second birth. The second birth, the new birth, requires a direct divine activity of God. And the very contrast in the passage itself emphasizes the point that we're trying to make that we have to focus if we're going to look at the virginal conception of our Lord, which is a vital part of our understanding of Christmas, is it not? Then we're going to have to understand that the normal process could not have been used because if so, we would have had a a new person coming into existence. And he did not come into existence as a new person, he'd always existed. What happened is that he became truly human, he accepted every attribute, he united himself forever by the way, not just temporarily, he united himself eternally to all that is essential to true humanity, but without a new person coming into existence. Well, this picture here of our Lord in entering flesh, the first stroke of the brush is simply that concept of incarnation, the word was made flesh. The second stroke of the brush is the concept of habitation, and he dwelt among us. That word dwelt is uh, the idea of tabernacled with us. You see, he did not temporarily become a man, but he did temporarily live with man. He dwelt, tabernacled. The idea of dwelling or tabernacling here conveys the idea of something temporary. A man forever. And to become more like Christ. This is something that the Lord has been working into my own heart in recent days. In fact, even this morning, I have a friend, a former Los Angeles Police Department fellow, whose job was to intimidate murderers. I mean, this guy had an interesting background. And I've been meeting with him uh, once a month ever since I got out here. And uh, sometimes it is intimidating, even though I'm not a murderer. Uh, But we've been dealing with some of the issues that that concern our hearts and some of the issues we're thinking about. And one of the things that's really been uh, impressed upon my heart in recent times, and that is that when we are concerned about becoming more like Christ, that doesn't mean more divine in and of itself. It's true that our Lord manifests the characteristics of deity. I realize that. But nevertheless, He is a perfect human being. He is truly human and to become like Christ is to become more like what a human being is supposed to be like. And that means a lot of things. For one thing, it means learning to enjoy being a volitional being. I I, I spent some time yesterday with a lady, in my opinion, a dear sweet lady, but she just... She has such a horrible time making a decision. She she can't enjoy the fact that she's made in the image of God with what that means as a rational being. And I think it ought to be fun. It ought to be exciting. It ought to be honoring to God. Lord, thank you for giving me a brain and allowing me to make choices. And then it also ought to be fun. It ought to be exciting if if we're becoming more truly like Christ. It ought to be exciting to just enjoy our emotions. Enjoy feeling If he is a human being, if he is a true model of what a human being is supposed to be like, it encourages me to focus on the fact that in becoming like Christ, I'm becoming more like what human beings are supposed to be like. I'm never going to be omniscient, or omnipresent, or omnipotent. But the model of our Lord is a vital model for us. And I think something that should be encouraging for us. The third stroke of the artist's brush in painting this picture of our Lord in entering flesh is the idea of manifestation. And we beheld his glory. There are a lot of verses that emphasize that. First Timothy chapter 3, for example, in verse 16 says, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the spirit and seen of angels and preached unto the Gentiles and believed on in the world and received up into glory. He manifested his glory and then we have in the next phrase an evaluation of that the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Full of grace and truth. Only begotten is a word which means unique. He's the son of God in a sense in which no one else is a son of God. And it's amplified then full of grace and and true to me the only thing that exceeds the incarnation as a manifestation of God's grace is the crucifixion the cross let's move to our third picture of our Lord in John chapter 1 and that's in verse 18 the picture of our Lord in explaining God verse 18 no man has seen God at any time the only begotten Son, or some versions will say the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. God as pure deity is absolutely invisible and inaccessible to man. We are made in the image of God. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that our Lord is the image of God Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that not only is he the image in some sense as we are the image but beyond that he is the exact expression of the invisible God our likeness to God is a mere shadow in comparison with the way he is like God But he is the image of God in the full sense. Colossians 2 verse 9 tells us that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily wise and bodily form. There's God. Now what do you do with the passages here? It says no man has seen God at any time. But if you look in the Old Testament, you'll find several passages where we have statements about people seeing God face to face. Remember the time when Jacob wrestled all night And after that night, he was amazed because he said, I have seen God face to face. The way we put that together, I think, is very simple. And that is simply that that he did not see God in his uh, unveiled form. He only saw God, he only dealt with God in a veiled and incarnated form. Obviously, God was allowing himself to be represented and manifested even in a weakened form in wrestling all night with Jacob. What do you do with a statement where, where Moses, we're told of Moses, that Moses was different from the other prophets because with Moses, God spoke face to face. Face to face. Literally, the Hebrew says mouth to mouth. But we read later on that Moses never saw God face to face. So what it means when it says face to face Is that God speaks to him in direct words Not in dreams and riddles and visions and dark sayings That's explained in another passage But when, when Moses asked to see God's face He says, show me your glory In Exodus chapter 33 It's, it's interesting what happened, isn't it? You remember that passage? God says, no, I'm not going to let you see my glory directly I'm not going to let you look upon my face I'm going to hide you in a cleft of the rock and I'm going I'm to put my hand on you And I'm going to walk by you And I'm just going to take my hand away so that you can see my hinder parts. Talking about an interesting chapter. An amazing concept. Moses never saw God face to face. And that no man has seen God at any time is what the verse tells us. See, In an unveiled, non-incarnated form. And and then what happened after that is because he got a glimpse of the backside of God when he came down from the mountain I like King James English. It says he wist not that his face was glowing. I like that. Have you ever wisted not? (laughs) He didn't know that his face was shining And the people were you know flabbergasted because his face was glowing and they they had him put a veil on his face It was too shocking. Just a glimpse of the back part of God had caused him to have to put a veil on his face here. And then the book of Corinthians, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, takes up that theme and says, Remember how Moses came down from the mountain and he put uh, put a veil over his face because the glory was a fading glory? And he says, Not so with us. Not so with us. He says, We all with open, that means an unveiled face, we don't have to put a veil on it, we are, and our King James English says, says that we are beholding in a mirror. But that's the wrong thought. If we are reflecting like a mirror, the glory of the Lord, and it's not a fading reflection, it's an ever-increasing reflection from glory to glory, in contrast to Moses' fading reflection. And you see that very point is emphasized in verse 17 here. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came obviously in to, to full light through the person of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, the picture of our Lord here in in, uh, uh, manifesting his glory and revealing God, explaining God, is seen very obviously. The point of this passage and many others would be something like this. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus in interrupting a funeral parade and restoring a young man who was dead to his, his widowed mother. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus in feeding 5,000 people with a few loaves and a few fishes. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus as he's comforting two sisters who are bereaved because of the loss of a brother. Even so much that he wept, perhaps about their loss, perhaps about other unbelief. But you want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus when he says, Lazarus, come forth. That tells you what God is like. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus as he was on the Sea of Galilee and he says, uh, wind and waves, stop. That gives you a glimpse of God. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. And they were ridiculing him and mocking him and asking him to come down from the cross. And yet he stayed when he could have called twelve legions of angels. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus in sitting on a well in Samaria and talking to a woman about the water of life. You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus in the whole picture of the Gospels. See, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, He has declared, explained, shown, the, the word here is exegeted. That's what what the pastors are doing when they go to the Scripture. He has shown us what God is like. No wonder our Lord's heart was heavy in John chapter 14 when Philip says to him, Well, Lord, there's just one more thing that would really be nice. Just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And our Lord's response, you can just feel the heaviness of his heart, was, Oh, Philip, Philip, have I been so long with you? And you don't understand that whoever has seen me has seen the Father? See, the picture of our Lord in explaining God here. Let's move to a fourth picture in just a hurry, and I'm not going to paint this picture for you. In verse 29, the picture of our Lord in effecting salvation, the sacrificial Lamb of God. There's much that could be said there, but let's go on to look very, very hurriedly at a fifth picture, and that's the picture in verse 49, the picture of our Lord in establishing his kingdom. There are several hints to that. Verse 41, he's the Messiah, the Christ. But in verse 49, Nathaniel answers and said to him, Rabbi, Thou art the son of God Thou art the king of Israel The king of Israel He is the king and we have just a glimpse of the fact that someday he is coming to establish his kingdom. Now, I don't know, I, I really don't understand the details of our Lord's response. He says, you're going to see greater things than that. And he explains in verse 51, you're even going to see heaven open and the angels ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. There are all kinds of interpretations to what, uh, with, with regard to what that means. It, it is not fulfilled in any details of the life of our Lord unless you take it in the dream sense Some kind of a figurative sense. Remember when Jacob had a dream about the angels ascending and descending? And perhaps there is an allusion here to that. And now he may be seeing just as, as Jacob's dream symbolized that special divine protection and divine presence through the angels, the mediation of the angels. Now here that's to be done through the sun. Perhaps that's what he's saying, but maybe he's saying far more. Maybe he is referring to that literal kingdom when the angels, of course, will be as direct ministers when he rules and judges on the earth. But in any point, the, in any case, the point here is the fact that he is the king of Israel. Reminds me of Luke 1, turn to Luke, keep your finger there, and turn to Luke chapter 1. In, in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, the angel says to Mary, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and shalt bear, bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. You see, people today... Many of them are willing to accept the fact that Jesus was some kind of special person who lived and died upon this earth. But they're not willing to accept the fact that he's going to return and that he's going to establish a kingdom. If you ask them, well, was verse 30 fulfilled literally? And the answer is certainly Mary did find favor with God in this very special way. What about verse 30, 31? Behold, you shall conceive in your womb? Yes, that happened literally, did it not? And you'll bring forth a son. Did that happen literally? And the answer is certainly it did. And his name will be called Jesus. And that happened very literally, obviously. But then he will be called great? Yes, that happened. And it shall be the son of the highest? Yes, they'll say that. But then the rest of the phrase, they say, oh, from here on, though, we must take it spiritually, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there shall be no end. When I was a kid, uh, a teenager, I used to have to go to Memphis, Tennessee uh, once every two weeks because I had a dental problem. I was in the early days when they just started doing orthodontic work and they had a dental school and I had to go to that, but they took me to a fish market. And I had to walk across the town of Memphis to the dental school to do that. Now, the fish market was interesting. One day I heard a story there at the fish market. Uh, some fellow was opening a new fish market and he had all of his friends there for the celebration and he asked them to comment upon how they liked his market. And the first fellow said, Boy, I really do like everything you have here. It's a beautiful market, except I don't like your sign out front. Your sign says uh, fresh fish for sale today. And he says, that word today is wasted. I mean, just get rid of the word today. Fresh fish for sale. So he went out and he erased, he painted over the word today. And then he was speaking with another friend. He said, how do you like my market? And the guy complained, well, I like everything about your market, except that I I just don't like that that word uh, for sale. Why do you have that there? Just put the sign up, fresh fish. That's all you need. It's a fish market. So he agreed and he got his paint and he covered up for sale. And then the, the third guy said, well, I don't like your sign. Uh, it's ridiculous. The reason why you're successful, the reason why you're able to build a new market is because we know your integrity. All you need is a sign out front that just says fish. So he, he covered it up fresh, you know. And then his fourth friend came to him and you can guess what happened. He said, well, I like everything except I don't like your sign, he says. When you get within two miles of the place, you can tell it's a fish market, he says. So just get rid of the sign. It's a corny story corny story but it emphasizes the point and illustrates the point that I want to make here for those people who read those verses that we just read from Luke's gospel there and say that this is true and this is true when they start knocking off this however no he's not going to come to reign and rule it it affects the way they interpret all of scripture and they'll chop this off because it doesn't meet with their standards and they'll chop this off because it doesn't meet with their standards and the first thing you know you have nothing left And and we have to be willing to accept the revelation of our Lord. John pictures our Lord here as coming as King of Israel in the future. Well, as as we celebrate Christmas this year, remember that the first coming of our Lord is not the only coming of our Lord. There are three major comings of our Lord. The coming as a babe in Bethlehem to be our savior. The coming at the rapture to take the church to be with himself. And the coming then later to judge his enemies and to establish his kingdom on this earth. The three comings of our Lord, if you wish. Your response to the first coming is the most important question in life and will determine your eternal destiny. Your response to the second coming, the rapture, could affect your manner of life, as the Bible tells us that it should affect our manner of life. And your response to that third coming will probably affect your interpretation of scripture and how you approach scriptures. You'll see that that's true for those various people who come up with differing schemes of eschatology. But we've seen here then five pictures of Jesus in John 1. The picture of Jesus in eternity past, the picture in entering flesh, the picture in explaining God, we didn't look at it, but the picture in uh, in effecting our salvation, and then the picture in establishing his kingdom. And I want to say that unless these pictures are, are in focus, then there's something going to be out of focus in our lives. The final picture is just as vital as the other pictures are. Whether you like it or not, someday, you're going to have to stand before the Lord and there'll be a time when every knee shall bow before the Lord, every knee those who are bowing in worship and adoration and those who are bowing because they are forced to kneel before the judge of the universe but every knee will bow why not do it now how do we do that? how do we go about? well assuming that we've accepted Christ as our savior assuming that we already believe that then I think we're accountable for following his example we've seen his example here where he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and that simply means that he entered flesh and then he gave that flesh for us how do we go about then responding and bowing our knees appropriately before him at this time of year on Wednesday the emphasis was that Christmas is a time of giving and I want to emphasize that that's true he gave to us and we are to give to him and we are to give the same thing that he gave he gave himself he gave in particular his flesh in his own body on the tree he bore our sins we're told he gave his body for us and that's what we're expected to give to him Romans 12 1 and 2 I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present what? What does it say? Your life? That's too nebulous. Your bodies as a living sacrifice. Have you ever done that? Let's bow in prayer.